Hello and welcome. I'm joined today by my good friend, John Ahern, who's a musicology PhD student in Princeton. He has taught for the Theopolis Institute and also written for Ad Fontes. Thank you very much for joining me. It's a pleasure to be on a podcast that I listen to on a practically regular, I mean, practically daily basis. So. so I've invited you to discuss the subject of music and particularly what is good music within church. So first of all, to kick us off, why is music a part of Christian worship in the first place? What purpose does it serve? Well, that's a that's a great question. I mean, I let me caveat first by saying that I am I always say this. I'm a theological lightweight. I really I don't know anything about theology. I don't have any official theological training. Um, my my training is actually uh, as a historian. Um, so I mean, I can kind of give you the historical answers that I like the most. I, I mean, the first one would just simply be that um, uh, Christian worship heavily prioritizes music by virtue of prioritizing prayer. I mean, if worship is is most fundamentally an act of, of prayer, then um, to pretty much any pre-modern person, that would inherently mean that it is also an act of music. Um, and those, those two things in, in almost every culture, uh, ancient culture, are intimately connected, um, connected in similar ways to the way that music is, is in ancient cultures, a kind of um, dispersed concept uh, more so than, than now. Like, for instance, I was recently rereading Plato's Republic, and he famously describes um, education as two things, gymnastics for the body and music for the soul. And in the category of, of musike in Greek, uh, he would include, uh, you know, yeah, prayer, rhetoric, uh, poetry, storytelling, you know, many of these different categories. And, and what those all maybe seem to have in common is, uh, is an attention to the way that words sound rather than simply what they mean. Uh, and and as that is a concern of, of prayer as well, that seems to naturally bring music to it. But then in addition to that, of course, distinctively in the way that the Bible um, portrays prayer, it, it, it does seem to consider um, music and poetry to naturally be a, a part of, of prayer. Um, you know, obviously there are, there are the classic proof texts here, um, not least of which would be Paul in Ephesians 5 and in Colossians 3, the way he emphasizes um, the Christian communication with one another, um, speaking to one another as an act of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and, and using rather um, technical musical language in the process. Um, maybe one other thing to mention is that, that in the more medieval period, perhaps influenced by Neoplatonism, one of my favorite answers to this question, why music, uh, is it's felt that music is a way of um, assimilating the church militant to the church triumphant. In other words, um, what the church, the way that the church triumphant um, operates in heaven, uh, in the sort of perfect new heavens and new earth, is this glorious polyphony of the many different choruses of Revelation four and five, um, and that when the church on earth in 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 the sort of present age does its music, its music is a reflection of that kind of glorious polyphony that we're ushered into uh, in, the act of, in the act of worship. So uh, music is a way of, of ushering us into the heavenlies. It's a way of us becoming more and more like the, the church triumphant. So you mentioned the way that there is some sort of affinity between music and the word in that the word 
the way that the word sounds is connected to music. And we tend to focus upon what the word means, but there's this other aspect to the word. And right. I'd be curious to see some of the ways that we can integrate that insight into our understanding of the church's song. How does the song of the church, the music of the church, elevate its word character? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. I mean, there are uh, there are various directions that you go with that question. Um, since I know ahead of time that you're you're looking to get us in a in a kind of direction where we talk about uh, CCM, contemporary Christian music, uh, one of the one of the most important respects in which word and music interact with each other is is at the level of what we might describe as musical form. So if you have a text, and let's say that it's a biblical text, and you want to sing that biblical text, um, I'll take off the top of my head um, uh, the Magnificat, uh, Mary's, Mary's song. Uh, that as a, a text of poetry constrains how the music will materialize. Um, so for instance, if you have a kind, if, if you've chosen ahead of time a musical idiom, that prioritizes uh, a great deal of repetition that also prioritizes um, certain predetermined musical formats, like for instance, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, something like that. Uh, you'll, it'll turn out that, that approaching Mary's Magnificat is an almost impossible task. Uh, it, and this, is, this might actually be true also if you choose a hymn uh, it's as, your, as your typical format, with, where a hymn is sort of a four phrase piece of music and it has an extremely rigid metrical structure and um, it strophes the poetry, which means that it, it cuts it up into these bits and then they repeat over and over. Um, so both of those formats are actually going to approach Mary's Magnificat fairly awkwardly. And, um, and for, for a variety of reasons. Uh, number one, Mary's Magnificat is rather long, so you have to get through a great deal of text. And particularly for that kind of um, pop music format of verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, uh, that's very good at getting through maybe, you know, four lines of poetry, but it's not very good for getting through however many Magnificat is, 20 or so. Uh, and another thing that both of those things, the hymn, the traditional hymn, and uh, the more pop uh, chorus format are bad at is when the emotional mood changes. Like uh, they tend to be sort of one mood per song uh, bits, but if you've got a, an opening section that is um, Mary magnifying the Lord, and then you've got another section about um, uh, tearing down the mighty from their thrones and feeling the hungry with good things and so forth, uh, those are different emotional tenors, and it turns out that that is not going to sit easily with those two musical approaches. So all of that to say that, that, that the biblical texts that we are actually asked to sing, both um, asked to sing by the Bible itself, and also we are asked to sing by the kind of uh, normed norm of tradition, uh, those texts will end up uh, rubbing up against our predetermined musical forms and asking things of those forms that the forms aren't going to be very good at. And that's when somebody like me comes along and, and says, well, historically, there are, there's a much richer uh, slate of options, musically speaking, than these two sort of narrow options that we are oftentimes presented with. And we need to explore those options if we're going to faithfully sing the, the texts of the Bible.
Does that answer your question? I, I sort of went off on a tangent. In part, uh, what you're talking about is very much the relationship between the text and the music and the ways that the text places certain demands upon music if it's going to be faithful to it. I'd be curious beyond that to talk about some of the ways in which the church is a community formed by its collective song. So music isn't just something that relates to its text, it also relates to its performers. And the ways that a particular musical piece is performed mm. creates relations among persons, whether that's between an audience and the performers upon stage, whether it's a soloist performing a piece or whether it's a gathering of musicians improvising together, whatever right. it is, there seems to be a further communal aspect of music that music is one of the things that most brings us together as communities. And it seems yeah. that's one of the purposes that it does serve within the life of the church. How can that inform um, the ways that we choose music and yeah. make decisions between the sorts of music that we perform and how we do so? Right, right. That's a great question. Uh, so absolutely. And I think that, that what I was talking about, that old notion of um, music uh, being a reflection of, of heaven and music making the church militant like the church triumphant, that sort of presupposes certain things. I mean, um, this is something I've talked about an awful lot. It's sort of a hobby horse of mine, but but the way that uh, a lot of music now assumes that the the basic act of music composition is that you start with a melody, and then subsequently you add a whole bunch of chords underneath that melody. And what what a lot of people don't realize is is that that itself is a reflection of a certain mode of production of music. And that mode of production of music presupposes that music is um, number one, it's, it's one person sort of primarily responsible for making the melody. It's a, it's a sort of soloist or group of soloist activity. And then underneath that, there's a kind of, um, one could even describe it as like proletarian uh, perfunctory activity of providing accompaniment, providing chords. And though that's a, that's a, a textural layer of the music, which on its own would not be interesting enough to support listening. Uh, but, uh, you know, it provides this kind of background for, uh, for the main melody. And then that whole unit itself stands in relation to a kind of assumed audience uh, which, which ends up meaning that that, that musical decision to, to approach the music in this way with, with one melody and a whole bunch of chords underneath uh, presupposes a whole economy of music uh, where there are the performers amongst whom there's this division of like the soloist and the accompanist. And then there is a listening audience which receives the music and is not actively itself participating in the music. Whereas alternative models of music might be everyone sings the same melody and uh, that that might strike us as boring, but I mean, you know, for instance, if uh, if you go to a, I've I've heard this about about the UK that if you go to a sports game in the UK, uh, you'll hear uh, men very loudly chanting or singing together in unison. No one finds that boring. That's awesome. That's a reflection of. I mean, it is of course a reflection of unity, um, and that's what's great about the sort of Protestant hymn. That's what was felt in the Reformation to be great about the Protestant hymn is that there was this everyone is uniting around a single melody. Or you could have a model of music where people are able to sing multiple different melodies, which is what we call polyphony or counterpoint. 
And that itself is this glorious model where there are these competing musical demands and they have to be balanced out by um, a certain set of rules or like a, a set of a gameplay uh, rules that, that govern how much uh, autonomy each melody gets. And that is that, on the other hand, presupposes a model of musical economy in which everyone is a participant. Uh, and there's not this, uh, let's say, consumerist model that uh, we're preparing this music in a studio in order to deliver it to listeners who are going to be passive recipients of it. And if you, if of course, I mean, I barely even need to ask the question, but if you ask which, which model fits best with uh, church music as, as sort of the Bible would dictate it, I think it's pretty clear that it would have to be the unison model or the polyphony model, but there's something I think inherently wrong about that model that demands one single melody and a whole bunch of chords underneath, because you're, this is not coincidentally a model that's arisen more lately in sort of post-industrial society, and it's suited to uh, that post-industrial economy, but it, it doesn't turn out to be very suited to um, speaking to one another with psalm hymns and spiritual songs. Is that, and is that sort of more the direction you were thinking of? Yes. Uh, beyond that, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts about how church music answers to the strong demands that people bring to it, where music is integral to people's identity, their mm, preferred yeah. musical styles, the sorts of music that they consume. How can a church square those sorts of demands, um, which to some extent, if they don't answer those, the um, people are just going to go elsewhere, and the need to form people into a different uh, form of music that we could enjoy in unison and perform in unison. Interesting. So, uh, are are you are you talking about a situation in which a, a congregant is feels uh, an affinity to the the particular uh, song that they want, and they're just not going to go go with anything else? Is that what, what you mean? more generally where every congregant has their own preferred musical styles that they will um, prefer over others. And so a church that caters to those styles um, will be one that they'll prefer over a church that doesn't. Right. And right. that is a very practically, it's a very strong demand that limits the flexibility that many churches feel when it comes to developing right. the church's song. Yes. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think there is a there is a inherent bias in church music selection, the sort of average music that you choose on a given Sunday. There's there's a bias toward the path of least resistance. Uh, you know, one thing that that uh, smart galaxy brain uh, church musicians like me seldom think about is is uh, that was supposed to be a self-deprecating remark. I'm saying that we're often too too busy thinking about high-minded matters to realize that that probably most of the battle with respect to church music is fought uh, when well the the battle's already over given the fact that most congregants go into church already super familiar with the average contemporary Christian music song uh, because they've heard it on the radio in the car or they just you know uh, have it on Spotify or on whatever their preferred streaming platform is, you know, whereas uh, most people don't just know hymns. And especially if you, if you are trying to create a church music program ex nihilo, if you're trying to, to create a church music program based on 
music that's going to likely be unfamiliar to everyone there. You, you, there's an immense amount of, of inertia, given that people, people are familiar with the tunes, you know, the Matt Redman, Chris Tomlin tunes, when they walk in the doors of church. They've, they've heard it throughout the week, and they, and they know that already. Uh, but, but they're not familiar with uh, Claude Goudamel or whatever deep cut from the 18th century you're going for or whatever. And as a consequence, I think that, that that's, that's a practically insurmountable task. I, I mean, it's one thing if you're a church musician, but if you're, a, if you're just a pastor trying to justify your decisions to the average congregant, uh, that's, that's a tough sell. You're, you're asking a lot from your congregation. And, you know, unless church music is one of your biggest priorities, you're, you're not necessarily going to want to um, kind of stake, stake your pastoral ethos on, a, on, a, on an issue like that, that feels more um, like audiophora or prudential. So I think that ends up meaning that even pastors who feel that there is something greatly lacking in CCM, uh, are hardly ever going to make that the uh, uh, hill to die on, just because they're yeah, like I said, there's that natural inertia uh, that comes from the the consumer choice being on the side of CCM very strongly. So you've touched upon this to an extent so far. Could you say more about the criteria that you believe good church music should be judged by? Yeah, I think uh, what I already said about how it, it has to be formed by the needs of the particular text that you're doing. And I think that uh, one of the tasks of Christian worship is just simply to make uh, the Psalms and Canticles uh, mem so memorized is not even strong enough a word, just so deeply in the bones of every congregant that that the material of Psalms and Canticles feels like it's constantly with us and constantly present throughout the week. I think that's one of the most important tasks of worship is just that, that act of um, catechizing people into the songs of the church, the songs of the Bible. And um, so whatever musical choice you make needs to sort of be in service of that fundamental task. I think that's why um, it's, it's incomprehensible to some people that chant uh, you know, not necessarily Gregorian chant, but but some some kind of chant, Anglican chant, Lutheran chant, etc. It's incomprehensible to some people why that would that would be still on the table in the year 2022. But but it turns out that there's very little music that's better at that simple thing of of getting these canticles or psalms deeply internalized within you. Uh, you mentioned and, the experience at a football game. I mean, yeah. it's essentially chant that's taking place there of some yeah, kind. That's right. And, and it's important to remember that chant as a, as a term is a very recent word. I think that if you look up in the Oxford English Dictionary, uh, the word chant simply meant it was, it was identical to melody or song before about the year 1750. It's only after that time when it began to peel off and mean like, this style of singing that doesn't have meter or pulse and in which you just sort of like say the words to a, to a note. Um, it turns out that that was the vast majority of everybody's musical experience before this time. And that um, if you were to, if you were to draw an analog to what is most similar to chant nowadays, actually hip hop would be very similar to chant. If you ask a classicist or a medievalist, what would, uh, Homer or the Song of Roland have sounded like they will. They will all, to a man, tell you that probably R and B or hip hop is is the closest modern analog. So, so these are just forms of music where you're 
you're prioritizing the text, the textual concerns over musical concerns. And that's, that's sort of the basic reasoning for chant. But now I've lost the thread of what your question was. Oh, criteria of music. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that would be one. Um, what we already talked about and th these, these decisions about how you format the music in terms of polyphony or, or monophony or these different types of concerns. I think there are subtle social implications, theological implications to those kinds of decisions. And then maybe a third one would just simply be that uh, th these are prudential matters. I mean, uh, many of these things are prudential matters. I'm not going to claim that there's one style of music which we should bind the conscience into doing. But when we make these decisions, we should have our eyes open about why it is that we like one style over another. Like, I think many people think to themselves, well, th that, that needs no explanation. Why I like um, Hillsong or why I like Bach, St. Matthew Passion, those are just my affinities. That deserves no further examination or, or merits no further examination. But that's, of course, um, a naive way of how consumer choice works. Uh, and we need to understand that a lot of our musical affinities are a consequence of, of consumer choice. Uh, and that many of the reasons that, uh, that we like a certain kind of music are reasons which are uh, not only theologically unformed, but they're, they're many steps. They're, they're completely unformed. And in fact, they're, they're determinations of people who do not have Christian worship in mind at all, right? I mean, the people who came up with the format of an average pop song and came up with the format of studio production of commercial recorded music. They did not have congregational singing in mind as a goal. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily disqualify CCM right out the gate, but it, it should at least cause us to take a step back and say, well, wait, you know, what, what are the governing goals here in, in producing this music? And are those goals compatible with, with Christian worship? And I think a lot of the time we'll discover that they're not. So we've spoken a bit about some of these things on the side, but a lot of our modern culture of music is novel. It's something that has only existed in something like its current form for the period of time that we've had recorded music. Yes. And it seems to me that if we're going to understand the place that music plays within the modern church, we're going to struggle to do that without considering the dramatic shifts that has, have taken place in our culture of music more generally. Could you speak to some of those? What are some of the most significant changes that you see that have changed, changed the way that the church relates to its song? And how do you see churches um, going along with some of these changes in ways that may not be very reflective? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. Uh, first of all, I guess I should clarify, since I... My tendency is, is toward Luddite, uh, you know, just all the technology changes were bad. Uh, that, but I want to make it clear that I actually don't, I don't think that. I mean, for instance, the blessing of being able to print sheet music or uh, recording technology that allows us to, for instance, make this podcast. Those are blessings. Of course, they're blessings. And, and it's not like we're going to turn the clock back. But uh, like you say, we need to not just take them uncritically, uh, you know, that these technological choices mold us in certain ways and so forth. So yeah, the, the, the obvious one, if we sort of work backward chronologically, the obvious one would be around the turn of the century when recording technology, they were in 20th century, when recording technology became available. And then, you know, in the 
uh, 40s, 50s, and 60s when it really sort of was honed into a science, particularly for music. Uh, it it it's obvious, but it it's worth contemplating it for a while. If you want music in the year 1850, you have to make it yourself. You know, there there's you don't go turn on Spotify or the record player or whatever. If you want music, you make it yourself. People still wanted music, and they did it uh, as often as they could. Uh, there were whole cultures around how you can recreationally do music. You know, um, like the scenes in all those period dramas where uh, the, the love interest are sitting next to each other on piano bench and playing a forehand, you know, Schubert piece or whatever. That's totally real. That really happened. That was the only way they could make music, uh, when they wanted music. And what that means is that there's a huge amount of literacy, musical literacy in a period like that. A lot of people have a high level of music proficiency. There's not really this expectation of some people are born with musical talent and others are, you know, in, you know, infinitely tone deaf and will never be different. There's a high level of recreational amateur musical proficiency. Uh, music education is sort of assumed to be an important part of society since you don't have, it's, it's not just such a common thing that you can you can expect it to be anywhere. And um, if, you, if you want some pleasant music in the background, you actually have to do it yourself. That's a, that's a profound difference. Uh, and it, it's worth contemplating how that, how that interacts with church music, which maybe we can in a bit. Another one that's, that's very important though, is uh, the going back in time even further, it's the invention of the printing press. And, and actually they didn't figure out how to do music printing until 1500 down yeah, a printing press was closer to 1450 but but music printing around 1500 uh that's that's the first moment in history where people start to become really interested in uh preserving musical pasts i mean they're they've always been sort of interested in that but but this idea that i for instance can um think to myself, oh, what should we do for church this Sunday? Maybe I'll do a motet by Josquin or a mass by Palestrina. That's incomprehensible to anyone before like, you know, the year 1800, because uh, keeping track of this music, archiving it, uh, then deciding that maybe someone will be interested in it. So I'll reproduce it or print it or sell it or put it online or something like that. That that is actually something that is highly non-traditional, and I say this just in case somebody thinks that I'm going to be bashing CCM for the rest of the podcast. Actually, there's a kind of traditionalism with it with respect to music that is highly non-traditional that sort of assumes modern modes of technology, uh, like oh, I can go dig up a very random piece of music that they did in the year 1650. But if you went back in time and talked to the person in 1650 and told them, oh, I did your motet in church this Sunday, they would think that was heinous and bizarre and probably necrophilic or something like that. Like, why, why on earth would you do that? Just write your own church music. Um, so there, there are two sides to this story. But, but you're, you're absolutely right that, that the, the technological modes of production uh, have a huge impact on, on church music decisions. Beyond that, you've commented upon this in various contexts, the importance of the economics of our music and the way that that changes the way that we relate to music more, for instance, as consumers than producers and the ways in which the whole industry develops around it. Yeah. Yeah, I, the, the one I, I mean, maybe this is what you're talking about. The one I always think about is 
I am aware of this because I've had to sit through and in college and, and in grad school, many music theory classes, which are very hated by most people. But what they make you realize is that, uh, for instance, the, the top 40 chart is, is directly a consequence of some very canny, smart music producers who understand music theory. And they too had to sit through it in their college classes. Um, and these music producers know exactly the kind of musical decisions which are going to make you buy the song and like the song. And then of course, there's a return on investment on all the massive capital investment in that song. So it, that's why I wanna bring attention to the economic side of it because there's a kind of mysterious and almost magical uh, thing that happens behind the song. Uh, you hear the song and you just think to yourself, I really like how this song sounds. Um, I had a friend who described it perfectly. He was listening to a song by Lord, uh, and he's like, this is like weaponized pop. And he's, he's absolutely right. There are these, all these decisions, uh, down to like the chord, the chord structure, you know, and the, the sort of rhythmic pattern and how, how much reverb they use. I mean, the, the reverb, which is that, that studio effect that you, um, or inorganically put, I mean, the studios are very dead spaces naturally when you record, but then the music producer with software patches will add all this reverb or echoey sound on to give it, you know, reverb has a very clear um, topological meaning uh, in, in modern pop music, which is, it makes me feel sort of mystical and like I'm out in outer space or there's a massive cathedral-like space around me. And perhaps all these emotions I'm feeling have some greater significance. I mean, and, and it's funny how you can go to pop songs and, and find out the places where they use reverb and they don't use reverb. And, and it's very clear that it, it, it signifies in some kind of way like that. Now, the, the producer understands all these kinds of decisions and they know how to deploy these, these techniques uh, in just the right way to affect the particular demographic that they're going for. And that demographic they know will you know, purchase the song on that basis. Now, that's, I, I, what I'm not saying to be clear is that that's also how CCM works. It is how CCM works, but I don't think that CCM, I think a lot of CCM uh, musicians and producers are very nice people and they're not trying to swindle anybody or just like their whole goal isn't merely profit, but they are nonetheless using, um, using a mode of, of production, which assumes that as its primary goal, whether or not they want that to be the primary goal, uh, that is the kind of uh, hierarchy of, of desire and hierarchy of, of uh, you know, priorities, which are informing uh, what musical decisions are being made. And that I would say is is deeply dissonant with the kinds of priorities which are involved in church music, which are necessary and much more local. They're more concerned about um, participation of the, of the priesthood of all believers. They're much more concerned with, uh, you know, obviously <laughs> honoring God and honoring God through, the, through kind of submitting to the particular formats and exigencies of the scriptural text. So the same reason that you might have um the sort of weaponized pop that you described in that Lord song might be the reason why there's a sort of convergence upon the musical idiom of Coldplay or U2 in yes. um, CCM. Right, absolutely. And, and, and reverb, I think, again, plays a huge role here. The other one that does is um, 
is modality. And it's difficult to describe what modality is in music, but but harmonically speaking, you know, there's there's major, which sounds to us happy. It didn't always sound to every culture happy, but in 2022, major chords, you know, um, do, mi, sol, mi, do, that sort of sound is, is very happy. Whereas minor chords, do, 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 I'm not a singer, sorry, but you know, that that's a bit sadder sounding. So major and minor vaguely correspond to happy, happy sad. Modes are these um, older style of, of scale, which allow you to access kind of in-between emotions. And they became popular a bit in the 60s with the Beatles, but they really became popular in the 80s and 90s, particularly with like U2, Coldplay, that kind of alternative um, rock uh, space. And um, they're just perfect for that kind of feeling of, I want a bit of pop, but I also want a bit of spirituality. And there's a reason why I think CCM has really imported the sound of, of those musicians and taken them to be the model because it, it does seem to have this uh, rapprochement between the, the kitschy uh, mass produced sound and the, and the sound that, that feels more worshipful, which is the, that buzzword you always hear in CCM circles. It'd be interesting to think about the backgrounds of those particular musicians because yes. Right. Coldplay, Chris Martin came from an evangelical background originally, and you too very much had a, a sort of Christian cult background in the early yes. 80s. And both of them have elements of Christian worship that seems to be wrapped up within their lyrics at various yes. Viva La Vida, various points in there, you can see all the Christian right. themes or um, 40 in um, you too, the use of the 40th Psalm. It yes. seems that the influences can almost go both ways. Yes, they, they can. And I think that there's, that's another canny market demographic decision as well. It should be pointed out. But the other one who, who sadly now, I think completely fits into that category of ambiguous between Christian and non-Christian is Sufjan Stevens, who had, had I think, a very explicit beginning in CCM uh, before he became a big, big deal. But then with his sort of standard albums, uh, he clearly has a lot of Christian influence, which seems to be getting less and less. And incidentally, I think that that's also the trajectory of the quality of his music, which is getting, uh, to my mind, less and less uh, interesting. But but it's the same set of things there. I think it. it but with Sufjan, you, you add into the mixture this folksy sound, and I always am keen to point this out that there's a folksy sound and then there's actual folk music, right? The whole point of actual folk music is that you're not letting anyone else do it. You're doing it yourself. Uh, you know, folk music is music which is made by the people in the room. It's impossible. It's, it's like an actual performative contradiction to listen to folk music that has been mass produced on an album. That's the opposite of folk, right? It's, it's commercial. Uh, but, but yet uh, many artists are very good at importing folksy sounds, which uh, if I were to sort of take a, an Adorno spin on it, I would say that folksy sound is perfect because it gives you the feeling that you are, uh, that, that it's folksy and that you're somehow involved in the production of the music, but it, it therefore makes you feel like you don't need to be involved in the production of the music. Um, and, uh, and that to me is the kind of devious uh, thing about Sufjan is that he, he gives that folksy quality to it. And, and you'll notice now in CCM, like everyone wants that. 
is is the is the folksy pick pattern in the guitar and maybe a little less reverb and the the raspy voices that's that's like the the currently fetishized thing um there was one other thing i was going to say uh, on this topic oh yeah and it, what what i think is is funny is that despite all this there there are Christian artists out there who, who, you know, over the decades, they're like, hey, guys, I'm Christian. And they make very clearly music that reflects their Christian belief. But nobody takes them seriously as a model for CCM. I'm thinking of, for instance, Johnny, later Johnny Cash and Bob Dylan. Both of those guys for decades have claimed to be Christians, even though Christians are like, hmm, I don't know. And, but nobody seriously thinks that, that they want CCM music to sound like either of those artists. Uh, there are even older artists who are CCM artists like, um, I mean, who am I thinking of? Um, Keith Green and uh, is it, um, there's Larry somebody and I can't believe I'm forgetting his name, but they're, they're much older CCM artists who have this different style. It's not the jars of clay thing that emerged in the nineties. It's this older style of, of music, which sounds so dated, but again, it reflects that what we what we prioritize in our CCM sounds actually has very little to do with um, any inherent category, theological decision or category liturgical uh, hierarchy. It has everything to do with the kind of pop music sounds that 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 most particularly speak to the demographic in mind. So, for the sake of our mutual friend Ansi, I have to ask you about Kanye. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm just going to plead ignorance on that. I, I, uh, I don't have enough time to listen to everything. And Kanye is just one of those guys that I barely listen to anything. I really like um, that in the bit that I have listened to, I really like his kind of uh, neo soul gospel direction uh, in, in recent albums. Those are neo soul gospel R and B. Those are the genres that i sort of have a more natural affinity to, but I just, I don't listen to that. I haven't listened to old Kanye. I barely listen to new Kanye. So when people start getting into discussions about what, you know, what's the relative quality of the more recent albums, I, I don't know. So sorry, Auntie, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna take a pass on that one. So one video that you've recommended before that I found very helpful on thinking through some of these questions is something by Adam Neely on the subject mm -hmm. of CCM as the music that he really hates and trying to get to the bottom of why he dislikes it. And one of the concepts that he explores in this larger exploration is that of musicking. And I thought it would be helpful for you to spend some time explaining that concept and why it might be important for our thinking about what constitutes good worship music. Yes, um, and I'm... I'm trying to remember. Yes, it's it's a music. I just googled it. Sorry. There's a famous musicologist who came up with this term uh, in I think the '90s. Uh, it was Christopher Small. Um, and to be completely frank, I have not read Christopher Small's book, but it's such a now it's become such a common term that you know it doesn't really matter. Uh, but I think that that in the '90s, what his concern was when he came up with that term, musicking, was to uh, to get people out of the mode of thinking of music as primarily this, this formal thing, either uh, idealized in the score for like classical art music, or for that matter, matter idealized in the recording, uh, the MP3 file, or whatever, for, for more pop music. 
Uh, and, and he felt that that was a reductive vision of what music is. And he wanted to expand the kind of, let's say, ontological boundaries of music to include uh, the behaviors that go along with music, the, the text that is impossible to divorce from the music, uh, maybe the, the bodily dispositions of, you know, dance or, or whatever, or the lack of, of dance. Um, for instance, you know, it's absolutely central to classical musicking that uh, people are there sitting in ties and uh, nice evening, evening wear and, and not moving their bodies at all until the end of the piece, at which point they clap and perhaps vacate their seats. Um, and that, that kind of bodily disposition is actually central to how the music operates. Um, and that he's quite right in, in, in those sorts of respects. Um, similarly, I think also uh, concerns of economics, like what we've been talking about, that, that these are all wrapped up in musicking and that musicking is a cultural practice uh, that involves many, many things. And it's not just surely the, the, the notes themselves. So for instance, the ways that um, uh, performance of CTM will generally involve a singer at the front. And um, is that the sort of thing that would come under Absolutely. musicking? Absolutely, yeah. 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 And, you know, to be clear, to be honest, to be clear, I have played probably about equal parts CCM worship in my career as a church musician. I've done about equal parts CCM and traditional. I'm not like, uh, it's not like I'm against my conscience to do CCM. I, am, I usually do what I'm asked to do, and I've done a lot of that. One of the things that I have noticed, though, about CCM, there are many CCM artists and, and CCM people who, who are trying to move away from the so-called me, I emphasis of, of CCM, who want, to, want it to be more God-focused, want it to be easier for congregations to sing. But despite that, it, you, know, you can try your hardest, but sometimes the music won't let you, right? I mean, if this music was designed for certain cultural practices and certain cultural contexts, uh, and if you're choosing to use that idiom, there are certain things that you're not really uh, going to be able to fight against ultimately. Uh, in some and, ways, maybe the problem is that the central gravity of um, contemporary Christian music is not actually the congregational worship yes. service. It's the um, radio um, playing or the um, yes. private Spotify listening. And then that's brought in, it's sort of replicated in some form within the worship service with the yes. soloist at the front. And the song is written for the solo performer and right. other people can sing along, but it's not really written for the congregational singing that you'd usually have for a hymn, for instance. Right. You, you're exactly right. And you said the word replicate. That's, I think, crucial that the where is the church music? If you had to point to it, where is it? It's on Spotify. It's not there on Sunday morning. Sunday morning is a replication of the Spotify track. Um, whereas a hymn, it's never a hymn that you sing on Sunday morning worship is never thought of as a replication of Trinity choir singing the hymn, right? The, the main thing is the hymn that you sing. And it's sometimes nice to listen to a recording of a hymn, right? Whereas if I sing, um, our God is greater or whatever that song is, you know, by Chris Tomlin, whatever the title is our God, right? And if I sing that on, on Sunday morning in my church, what everyone in the congregation thinks is, oh yeah, it's the Chris Tomlin song. And when they hear your particular band doing it, they're hearing in their head, 
the Chris Tomlin song and then they'll be disappointed that you don't sound exactly like that or whatever. Um, so basically you're competing with a thing which, which exists completely paraliturgically para, para outside your church. And, um, that I think in itself is one of the big reasons that I, I'm not a big fan of CCM. But then what so you, you were talking about- You have the artist who's producing these, this material as a solo yeah. or group performance. And then you're listening to that in private. And then you have almost that attempt to replicate it, which will create its own divide within the worship service with yes. the performers at the front and then yes, the congregation exactly. that has to sing along to a, a lesser degree. Yeah, and it has to sing along with something that was designed for Chris Tomlin, right? Uh, and, and it turns out that if, if you just listen to, if Chris Tomlin had made the melody, just perfect for congregational singing and not about himself, it turns out it would have been very boring to listen to, right? I mean, this is oftentimes the case that music that's really fun to sing is music that's quite boring to listen to. And similarly, music that is very exciting to listen to is oftentimes impossible to sing, right? I mean, that's just a sort of like amateur professional, uh, you know, divide there. But, but that's why, again, if you make the choice to go with this idiom that is designed for studio production and for passive listening, you, no matter how hard you try, it's going to give your congregation the short shrift when they attempt to sing it. But, you know, you also keep talking about the solo, the soloist up front, you know, something that you and I have mentioned before is that just on a kind of intuitive experiential perspective, uh, experiential level, whenever I see a CCM band up front in church, it's, it's, it's uncanny how it's always attractive people singing up front. Uh, it's, it's uncanny how that priority seems to know. I mean, I'm sure that again, everyone is, has good motives and nobody's like got any perverse motives here, but, but it's weird. Like what, why is that, that it's, it's always the sort of the, the attractive people, also the people who are good at moving their body, the people who are natural at, at a certain kind of way of, of expressing themselves uh, bodily. Um, those are the people that get the job, uh, get the role, uh, volunteer, you know, maybe not necessarily the ones who volunteer, but they're the ones who are chosen. Uh, and they're chosen, I think, because of a sort of subconscious bias of, well, this style of music accompanies a certain type of body, a certain type of bodily motion. Uh, and whether we're aware of that bias or not, I think it's going to be there. It seems to me there's something along the lines of a sort of vicarious subjectivity that's expressed by the gifted vocalist who is able to represent our emotions in their most beautiful and elevated form. Yes. And it seems to explain in part why of all the people that people fixate upon as their stars and idols, they are predominantly musicians mm. and particularly singers because singers represent something of the internal voice of the self. Yes. And for that reason, someone who sings beautifully and looks beautiful is someone that you feel can speak for you in a remarkable way. They can yeah. give voice to your inner self in a way that you could not do you could not do yourself. And so within worship, you can almost replicate that sort of dynamic where you have the attractive and gifted vocalist who can almost give voice to the congregation vicariously, right. which is a different sort of dynamic from trying to elicit the congregation's own voice 
yes. and have that as something that has an integrity of its own. Right. That, that's a very good point. I, and there's actually a, a famous essay by, I don't know, maybe you're thinking of it, a famous essay by, by Roland Barthes, uh, who talks about this, this function of voice. And is really, it's something that actually emerges distinctively in the West. Not, not all cultures have that sense that, of, that a person's voice when singing represents the subjectivity of the room in a way, uh, especially the, the female soloist. But uh, that really emerges in opera, and it's it's funny that that something you have pin, opinions about opera. If I remember, yes, I do, <laughs> I do. But but let's just point out that um, Cher and Beyonce and uh, uh, you know Sandra McCracken, they all have in common this what you what you noted that kind of subtle infrastructure of the voice as a vicarious subjectivity that goes back to to the emergence of opera in the 17th century, but. Um, you know, that's neither here nor there. I, I should point out that, that that's not, this isn't, we're not necessarily describing something that is bad inherently or even bad in worship. Um, but I think that it needs to be hierarchically much lower on the priority of worship than what you mentioned, which is eliciting from the congregation their own voices. You know, if, if Peter Lightheart were here, he would, he would talk about how um, he would be ashamed that I didn't mention earlier that that worship is is uh, very much we, we're offering ourselves up as a living sacrifice in the old testament uh they offered sacrifices and the aroma and the smoke and the um you know the sacrifice that had been burnt was rising up to god at some point in the in the old testament perhaps around perhaps around the davidic tabernacle uh there seems to be a shift into thinking of music as itself an act of that sacrifice that that when we lift up the song, the voice in song, that is the ascent of the sacrifice going up into heaven, and it's a sweet aroma to God. And now in the new covenant, that's sort of completely how it works. We are the sacrifice. We offer ourselves up in song. That's how we ascend. That's how our smoke goes up uh, into into heaven. Um, and so that is a hugely important reason why everyone needs to be involved. Uh, no one is exempt from church music uh and that that it's fine to have professionalism in church but it is it is uh something that's super added it's something that is you know if we're ordering our loves as augustine would have us our first love has to be congregational singing and then you know you can have your choir and your fancy organ uh and maybe even your female vocalist after that but but you know uh, that 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 needs to be the sort of bread and butter and if we're choosing our musical idiom in service of a goal in worship of having the professional soloist, uh, that's, that's putting our hierarchy of priorities upside down. It does seem to me that many of these decisions are almost made for churches by the sort of consumer demands of the yes. people in the pews. Right. And one of the things that we can maybe get into briefly is the way in which we've already talked a bit about how the music of the church is forming the sort of subjectivity of the congregation. But it's also, it's a work of sociology and the challenge of the sociology of music, I think is particularly pronounced with the ways that modern music, because of just the sheer variety of it, leads to, and the ways that we're not making it, we're mostly consuming it, leads to divisions along musical lines of musical preference. Hmm. So you have divisions between generations, divisions between classes divisions and between, race 
levels of education, race, culture, yeah. all these sorts of things. How can the church be a place where mm. we are <laughs> coordinating the song in a way that's healing some of these and overcoming some of these divisions rather than just playing into them or accentuating them? Yeah, that's a great question that honestly I have not really thought very much about. Um, one thing I, I want to be clear on is that I, I don't think that we should attempt to obliterate all heterogeneity in church music. Um, church music is and always has been non-Catholic. And I, if a Catholic is listening, I would say even Catholic music in the Middle Ages was non-Catholic. I mean, there are certain, let's say, Catholic elements, by which I mean universal, right? I mean, you know, there are certain universal elements that, that might hold true um, all places, but, it, but there's no one idiom that's going to work. Idiom, musical idiom is always going to be a consequence of the kind of vernacular region. It always has been and it always will be. Um, in a way, I, I think that, that the, the, the best play that a traditionalist church musician can make is to point out that actually CCM is the obliteration of the vernacular. Like it, it is in fact a way of um, robbing people of their own musical language and their own musical voice and imposing on them this kind of top-down approach where music producers are making all the musical decisions uh, and then you basically just get to choose with scare quotes what, what musical idiom you like. Um, I think that I can't tell you exactly how it should look, but um, I think that actually uh, many parts of the Black American church do a good job of this, that there is there is an, a, an ancient idiom that they have going back to the 18th and 19th century that they have, they have kept true to, they, it's morphed and it hasn't stayed the same always. But um, if, if you walk into a black church and, and the, the gospel music is amazing there, that's music that is genuinely being produced by all the people there. And there's a genuine um, harmony and polyphony which is present there from merely the people who are there. And it's not this sort of like mere uh, shadow of the platonic ideal that exists on Spotify. Also interesting to see the way that they incorporate music into preaching. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And what I what I was saying earlier about rhetoric and oration and prayer and, and so forth, all being sort of imbricated together. Um, so I, I'm not pres prescribing one particular way of doing it, nor am I suggesting that church music should obliterate those kinds of, of distinctions. I, I think that that a good church music is going to balance the vernacular needs of, of a particular people with uh, certain standard priorities of Christian worship, which will be the same, same everywhere. And I do, I do really think that the problem of CCM is not that it's too vernacular, it's that it's, it's not vernacular at all. So we talked a bit about the vernacular and the Catholic. Um, now we've used the word just as part of what we're discussing in CCM, contemporary. Um, let, mm. Just as we move towards a close, can you say how we should think about the contemporary traditional opposition? Yeah. Should yeah. we just be traditional? Is there a way in which we're just going to have to choose one side of that opposition? Is the opposition a good one? The way you ask that question makes me feel like you know that I have an answer. <laughs> I know that you have strong opinions on several issues, John. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't think it's a good binary. Um, it's in fact, as I said before, it's, it's a binary between traditional and contemporary 
that other eras of church music history haven't had to haven't had to choose. You know, they haven't had to choose one or the other. Um, and again, I think we all know this cerebrally, but we aren't very good at reminding ourselves this: that when Bach wrote his cantata, uh, you know, BWV sixty six, um, he wrote that on an Easter morning. Uh, you know, probably like seventeen twenty or so, and. Uh, the next Sunday he wrote a different cantata and then the following Sunday he wrote a different cantata and he, it never occurred to him. Maybe I should uh, go back to, you know, Heinrich Schütz 150 years ago and use some Heinrich Schütz in church. He, it all, all that occurred to him was that he make his own. Right. Uh, and they, and there are ways of having continuity with the past. You know, he could use old Lutheran chorales and those Lutheran chorales, were Luther's translation of uh, Latin Roman Rite Gregorian chants or Sarum chants. And you know you could trace a line uh, musically all the way back, but yet there was something new. Um, there was a great deal that was new every single Sunday. That is, I think, healthy and that's how it should look. But I think that there are you know, conditions of possibility that exist in modernity that make that very difficult. So that we, it's difficult to even know what what our vernacular is that we could appeal to, to use in our church music. Um, and, you know, if, if you're listening to this and you think, well, wait, John, what do you actually think we should do? Should, what should we do? Should we do traditional or contemporary? Um, the answer is we should do both. And actually there's nothing really on the market that maybe perfectly satisfies uh, what I'm describing. I mean, there might be a few things, but um, what, what needs to sort of first happen is that we need to, uh, re-educate ourselves musically speaking and liturgically speaking. Uh, this is going to be a long multi-generational process. I, I say that you have, we have to have a 100 year vision, 100 year plan for church music. And I think it really begins with increasing music literacy, increasing the number of people who um, want to actually make music for themselves rather than um, relying on other people making it. it it's, it's, you know, singing folk songs to your kids. It's having people over for music nights um having more psalm singing in your church just enjoying congregational singing in your church uh at your school having a kodai music program starting a suzuki music studio etc these are things that i think are what you need to have in place for 20 30 50 years before you can begin seeing the kind of fusion of contemporary and traditional that i think is would be my ideal but but basically at this point there's there's not really a silver bullet music option that i would point to as like well this is exactly what we should be doing um i think that you you know you if you're a church musician or a pastor you need to look at your congregation understand where they are and do the music that honors god and fits the scriptural text the best in that situation and then on the back burner have these larger longer term music education processes going for the future so if you are in conclusion to give a short bit of advice to each of the following people to a pastor to a church musician to a congregant in a church who's not a musician and maybe to someone compiling a hymn book what would be your brief advice to each one of those parties about what they could be doing now i'm i'm an academic I, my job is to just point out problems i don't have to solve them uh well let's see my advice to a pastor would be um just without remorse try to make your vision of music 
consistent with and systematic with uh, your theology. Like if you've got good theology of worship, just just draw, you know, ruthlessly and remorselessly draw the connection between that and and music, even if it means do I have to countenance uh, doing something that I know my congregation won't like? And then once you've once you've done that, once you've made that mental decision, then you can figure out, oh boy, how do I transition my congregation over the next 20 years to where they need to be? For a church musician, I would say um, the opposite, basically, and that is take it slow with your congregation. Uh, you need, you absolutely need to make sure that you're not losing them. Like, cause I think church musicians are always going to be the people who can sort of hear and see the musical future and they are already there in their minds, but, but it takes a long time. Uh, and also don't forget that people love music if you repeat it a lot. So just repeat the music you love a lot and they're going to like it. And then when you said to a congregant, I mean, I don't know, um, to a congregant, um, sing more music on your own. And what was the last one? Um, maybe someone compiling a hymn book. Oh yeah, someone compiling a hymn book. Well, I wrote a thing on this. You know, I yeah, I think there should only be a hundred for hymn book. Uh, and, and that was sort of almost a facetious thing. I, I obviously recognize that it would probably have to be more than a hundred. But um, to someone compiling a hymn book, I would say prioritize the music that's um, music that originates from the folk music tradition. Like there are many hymns which are, which were composed by some composer. And then there are many hymns which are just simply a composer has harmonized a folk tune. And that's what I think Ray Fum Williams, the greatest hymn writer, um, that's what he does a lot of. Just chock full of that and a lot of good lyrics, a lot of good hymn texts, and everyone will love it. No matter, you know, it, it takes about two minutes for someone to fall in love with a good Ray Fum Williams hymn. That's, that's my advice. Wonderful. Thank you very much for joining me for this discussion. Oh, it's been and a pleasure. I'm also going to give a number of links to articles and other things that you've written that explore and develop some of the trains of conversation that we've had in the last okay. hour. Great. I apologize in advance to your, to your readers. God bless. And thank thank you. you all for listening.